0: Well, as Chris has already mentioned, today we'll be continuing our series in the book of Malachi. Malachi, as you'll remember, is a book, the final book of the Old Testament. Uh, It's what we call a prophetic book. Uh, That is, it records God's message uh, to his people, the Israelites, through the prophet Malachi. Uh, The Israelites, at this point, were at a very low point in their history Uh, Even though they just returned from their exile in Babylon, they were home, they built their temple, they could worship God again, and yet they had become weary with God. They had allowed their worship to become empty and meaningless. They were in danger of forsaking him altogether. And so God, in his kindness, ascends Malachi to wake them up, to draw them back into a healthy relationship with himself. Uh, the book, if you remember, is divided into six sections, a kind of disputes between God and his people. And today we come to the third of these disputes. And so let's hear the passage now as Eliza comes up to read for us.
1: Today's passage is from Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 16, and can be found in the insert of your bulletin. Do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful, a detestable thing that has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful.
0: Great, thank you, Eliza. Well, many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man, who can find? Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man, who can find? This passage from Proverbs 20, verse 6, was written over 2,000 years ago in a very different context, but couldn't it have been written today? Doesn't it ring true for us in our own time? How often have you looked in the news and found yet another uh, leader, celebrity, or, or pastor, for that matter, caught in unfaithfulness? And now most of us here won't have Uh, Cheated on our spouse or other egregious acts of unfaithfulness, maybe like what we see in the news. I think if we're honest, being someone who's faithful and dependable is easier said than done. Who doesn't struggle with being true to their word or following through on commitments that they've made. Our sermon today is titled, God uh, is titled, Does God Care How We Live? And in our passage, we'll see that God's people were grieving the Lord by the way they were living with one another. God accuses them of living unfaithfully, uh, largely by betraying the commitments they had made to each other. And this unfaithful way of living not only breaks faith with each other, but it breaks the, their covenant with God Himself. And so for us, what I hope we see through Israel's unfaithfulness is this, uh, that faithfulness to God is shown in how we live faithfully with each other. As God's people, we are to reflect his faithfulness to us by being faithfully committed to the relationships and responsibilities in our lives. And so if you have your hand out in front of you, you'll see uh, three relationships where God calls us to be faithful. So we'll go through those in order this morning. And so the first is this, our relationships with one another. So look at verse 10 with me. Verse 10, do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? So just as we saw last week, God begins with a question. It's meant to uh, get their attention, to wake them up. Uh, He asks why they're profaning the covenant of their ancestors. If you remember your Old Testament, God had made a covenant with Abraham and his people to work for them, to bless them, to make them into a great nation, and to bless all other nations through them. And so basically God's claim is that they are treating this covenant irreverently, like it didn't matter. Like God's commitment to be their God was worthless and untrustworthy. How are they doing this? by being unfaithful to one another. This word unfaithful uh, denotes uh, broken trust, uh, betrayal, the failure to keep a commitment. And apparently this kind of irresponsible behavior was widespread through the nation as a whole. Uh, So for us, I think we need to notice this connection here. God is saying, uh, you're being unfaithful to me and my covenant by being unfaithful to those you see, those you interact with. Uh, To say it the opposite way, uh, if God's people are to be faithful to God, well then a significant part of this is being trustworthy and committed towards other members of their church family, of God's family. How is this the case? Well, he argues there in verse 10, do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? He's saying, guys, aren't you part of the same family? Uh, In other words, when these people betrayed someone's trust, either failing to follow through on a promise or maybe telling someone a lie, uh, don't they know they're deceiving their own relatives, those who God created? Not only that, but... The Father that they shared is Himself perfectly faithful. So, as His people, how can they not reflect His own faithfulness in the way they treat each other? Uh, Scripture often speaks of God's great faithfulness. God's faithfulness means that He's eternally reliable, He's steadfast, He's unwavering in what He does. Uh, In Exodus 34, God, of course, reveals himself to Moses, and he tells Moses what he's actually like. Uh, What do we find? Exodus 34, 6 and 7, he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to a thousand generations, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Over and over, we learn that when God says he will do something, he does it, even when it seems impossible. When he says something will happen, it happens. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave, it says in First Kings. And so, since... We are made in God's image. We ought to be those who show this kind of steadfast commitment. For us as New Testament Christians, how much more of God's faithfulness to his word have we experienced now that Christ has come? As 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, for all the promises of God in Jesus are yes and amen to the glory of God. So then, for us Uh, We ought to be those who are faithful in our relationships, especially towards God's people in the church. Uh, Faithful church members are true to their word, their promises, their beliefs, and their commitments. As a result, they can be counted on in good times and in bad. Faithful church members won't abandon you at the first sign of trouble, or when you need their help. Uh, Rather, they stick with you. They're fused to you. Uh, I recently had a root canal done on one of my teeth, which um, I don't recommend that experience to anyone. Uh, But I was shocked just how much energy and time they put into making sure the crown was stuck and fused into my tooth. Uh, That's the kind of Permanence that a faithful friend has. They will not move. They are there for good. Above all else, faithfulness is a willingness to sacrifice for the purpose of remaining true. So let me ask you this. Can people count on you to, to do what you say you will do? When goings get hard, are you tempted to throw in the towel on commitments, that you've made? How much can others trust you to perform what you promise? Of course, the New Testament uh, has lots to say about how we are to love and care for those in our church, uh, the one another commands. And uh, one way we express some of those commitments here at Ambassador is through the church promises that all church members make when they become members. If you've been around us for a while, you'll know um, during communion we read these promises to each other. And really one of the purposes of that is to help us all take seriously the commitments that we've made, the ways God wants us to live together. So if you are a church member this morning, let me ask you, how are you doing on those promises? Have you given thought to how you will follow through on doing good to some of those promises you've made, and, and not just to the people you get along really easily with, but those who are different from you. Uh, here's a quick sample of some of the promises you may have seen before up on the screen. So are we endeavoring to meet together regularly for worship to encourage one another? Are we making every effort to keep the unity of the church as those whom Christ has reconciled? Are we forgiving each other as Christ forgave us? Are we embracing our responsibility to love, care, and pray for each other as God's family? Of course, we won't do any of this perfectly, and being faithful in these ways, of course, will look very different depending on our personalities and our stage of life, maybe. But what is true is that God takes seriously his commitment to us and we show him love and honor when we take our commitments seriously to one another for his glory. And so we are to be faithful in our commitments to one another. And then number two, our relationship with the world So after God rebukes his people for their general unfaithfulness, he's going to now zero in on two specific areas that they are being unfaithful that seriously grieve him. And so the first here is in verse 11 and 12, this issue of marrying women who worship a foreign god. Verse 11 says, "Uh, Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary that the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Basically, what was happening here is some of the men in Israel were marrying women of other nations, uh, women who, as the text says, worshipped foreign gods. God calls this a detestable thing. It, it in some way desecrates the sanctuary he loves. As a result of this, the men will be cut off from the community. Their sin offerings will not be accepted. This is a pretty stern rebuke um, to, what seem to what may seem like us actually not that big of a deal. Uh, why does this anger the Lord to such an extent? I think first, uh, we need to see that Israel was forbidden specifically to marry those who worship gods uh, other than the God of Israel. If we look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, for instance, the Lord says this, uh, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drive out before you many nations, uh, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. So this is very clear in his word, in his law. I think it's important for us to note that the issue with these women uh, had nothing to do with their race. Uh, It had nothing to do with their ethnicity uh, or anything external about them. It was everything to do with the God that they served, a God opposed to Yahweh. It is not a command based on race, but on religion. So as a result of disobeying this command, they were being led into worshiping the gods of their wives. Exactly what the text in Deuteronomy warned against. I think that's implied here by the language of desecrating the sanctuary the Lord loves. You know, it's, it's 8 a.m. and they were praying to their wife's idol, maybe, in their house. And then at 10 a.m. they were walking into the temple and bringing an offering to the Lord. The Lord says, no. That's the kind of thing that led to your exile in the first place. Why would you be doing this again? That's really the reason the Lord comes down so hard here. It's their hearts that were at stake. We see this over and over again in the Old Testament. You think of King Solomon, for example, is a sad example of this. Turned away from the Lord, marrying unbelievers. And so for Malachi then, these kind of unions were evidence of divided loyalties in the people. For us, when we get to the New Testament um, there are a number of texts that make clear that this principle still applies to Christians. So these are a couple examples here. 1 Corinthians 7, 39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. 2 Corinthians six fourteen. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? I think for us then the point is clear. Marrying someone who you know is not believing the same God as you is a sin. Marrying someone from a different religion is not really an option if we want to remain faithful to the Lord. I know this may be a hard thing to hear, but God's word is very clear on this. Our Heavenly Father made us. He knows us. He knows our weaknesses. He wants our hearts centered on him, and therefore he won't allow his people to be turned away by making a marriage covenant with a non-believer. And marrying a non-believer then isn't just sinful. It's also, I think, unwise. Uh, Don't just take it from me. Uh, Listen to what Kathy Keller says in her article about this. Uh, here's Here's what Kathy Keller says. If only I could pair those sadder and wiser women and men who have found themselves in unequal marriages with those who are convinced that their passion and commitment will overcome all obstacles. In the words of one woman who is married to a perfectly nice man who did not share her faith, If you think you are lonely before you get married, it's nothing compared to how lonely you can be after you are married. She goes on, we need to hear the voices of men and women who are in unequal marriages and know to their sorrow why it is not merely a disobedient choice, but an unwise one. Now we need to be clear, the text is not saying that if you are already married to an unbeliever that you should get out. Uh, Paul writes to the first, uh, to, in 1 Corinthians 7 to tell Christians who are in this situation to not get a divorce. For who knows, even in that difficulty, the Lord may use you to save your spouse. God will help you wherever you are in the circumstances you are in. And praise the Lord for that. But then, to all those who are unmarried, we need to say this, that this command can just be really tough. Uh, One pastor says, uh, if you are single and desire strongly to be married, it can be deflating, even debilitating, when no believers make themselves available to you. But Satan is crafty. Don't give in. I think if we're honest, we all struggle with obeying certain commands from the Lord. But faithfulness means that we trust what God says in his word and not necessarily what the world or what our own eyes tell us. You can trust that God will work everything in your life for your good. You can trust that your situation on earth, whatever it is, is nothing compared to the future reward in heaven. If you have more questions about this, John or Jeanette or myself, are very happy to talk with you more about it as well. But for now, let's move on to the last way we are called to be faithful, our relationship with our spouse. Look at verse 13 with me. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. So we see that uh, the people's unfaithfulness have begun to hinder their access to God They were weeping and wailing. They were flooding his altar with tears because they realized that God was not looking with favor on them anymore. And so they give these grand displays of emotion as if to say, Lord, have pity on us. Won't you accept us? You can picture God here saying, are you serious? You're going to walk in here? trying to bring me an offering, like everything's fine, like you love and respect me, and meanwhile you're doing this? So these men were being unfaithful to their wives and treating it like it was no big deal. They had made a covenant vow before the Lord, and then they forsook it to pursue someone else that seriously grieved the Lord. And so the Lord's command in verse 15 there is clear. Be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. I think there are several reasons the Lord gives for this strong uh, condemnation of divorce. Uh, first, in verse 15, we see that divorce uh, ruins God's plan for children. So in verse 15, he says, Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek, godly offspring? one of God's intentions with marriage, of course, is that children can grow in an environment where they can know and love the Lord. And so to throw in the towel on marriage, and especially to marry an unbeliever, is to put this intention at risk. We also see in verse 16, he says, the man who hates and divorces his wife does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. I recently watched this documentary called uh, The President's Bodyguard. And it follows the story of this retired um, bodyguard, this American guy. He was hired to protect uh, President John F. Kennedy and Pope John Paul II, in their visits to Ireland back in the 60s, he shares some of the experiences and joys of doing this really unique job. And to his credit, he did an extraordinary job protecting uh, these men. But imagine for a second if Mike not only allowed others to harm the ones he was supposed to protect, but if Mike himself was the one to attack them the very ones he was supposed to protect. That's what the Lord says is like the equivalent of getting a divorce, and it grieves him. But perhaps the biggest reason the Lord commands against divorce is because of what marriage actually is and signifies. It's a covenant. If you look at there in verse 14, he calls uh, the wife the wife of your marriage covenant. Malachi's teaching as marriage of a covenant runs through really the whole of the Bible. Jesus himself affirms this in responding to uh, the Pharisees' question about divorce. So in Matthew uh, chapter 19, 3 to 6, this is Jesus. He says this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife? and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In marriage, then, it is God who does the joining. The two become one. And because God joined it together, no one should separate it. I think that's uh, what Malachi is getting at there in verse 14, where God, he says God's acting as a witness against husbands who were unfaithful to their wives. He's saying, I was there when you made this vow in my name. I'm the one who joined you two together, and I see when you break it. I wonder if you've thought about uh, the fact that the Lord attends all wedding ceremonies whether ones that have already occurred or ones that will occur in the future. When God stands as a witness to the covenant promises of a marriage, uh, it becomes more than just a human agreement. In effect, he says, I have seen this. I confirm it. I record it in heaven. So if you plan to betray her, you plan to betray me. And so breaking a marriage covenant for reasons that are unbiblical takes the the Lord's name in vain, and the Lord sees. For us then, although marriage is not given to everyone, to those who it is given, the covenant must be honored, even when it's difficult. Perhaps you're here this morning, and things are really rough in your marriage. Brother and sister, you need to hear that you've made a covenant not just to your spouse, but to the Lord. A covenant that you need to keep at all costs. And whatever it does end up costing, the Lord will be with you when you call out to him for help. If the issues are serious, uh, do seek help. Talk with a pastor, a mature friend. Invite someone in who cares for you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you were sinned against how these Israelite women were sinned against. Hurt, forsaken. Please hear that the Lord sees. The Lord knows. He cares for you. He will be sufficient in all your hurts and confusion. He is on your side. And he will make all wrongs right on that final day when all things are made new, so take heart. And then, if it was you, your own unfaithfulness and sin that led to a divorce, and you hear this, and you feel great shame. Know this: uh, the Lord has paid for all sin at the cross, even this sin. And while divorce, under most circumstances, is a is a devastating sin, it is not unforgivable. Our hope rests in God's faithfulness, which always trumps our unfaithfulness. In truth, all of us here today are like Israel. We're like these men who have been unfaithful in their commitments. And yet it was then, when we deserved nothing, that God demonstrated his faithfulness to us by sending his son, Jesus, whose perfect faithfulness is given to all those who come to him in faith. Look at what this passage in Ephesians 5 tells us about Jesus. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And this is really the good news of the gospel. That when we were unfaithful to God, not wanting anything to do with him, Jesus, the perfect bridegroom, pursued us at his own personal cost. He gave himself up for us, so that us as his unfaithful and adulterous people can be washed clean. Just think about that for a minute. Jesus was pleased to come to earth And suffer and die in your place for your sins, even though you and I have been unfaithful to him in every way. And Jesus, as the bridegroom, makes his vow to us, knowing full well all that he's forgiving. Listen to what Jared Wilson says about Jesus as the bridegroom. Every day, you and I reject the holiness of Jesus in a million different ways, only a fraction of which are, are, are we conscious of. At any second of the day, even our best days, Jesus could have the legal grounds to say, enough of this. You violated my love for the last time. The truth is, you've never met a wronged spouse like Jesus. You've never met a more disrespected spouse like Jesus. You've never met a spouse who more than carried their weight like Jesus. And yet, he loves us, and he gives to us, and he serves us, and he approves of us, and he washes us, and he delights in us. He doesn't just tolerate us, he lavishes his affection on us. He justifies and sanctifies and glorifies because of this wonderful truth, Jesus now stands with his arms open, offering you to come to him with everything forgiven and experience true joy in relationship to him. If you're not a Christian here this morning, we're glad that you've joined us. What is stopping you from coming to this Jesus? 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we started with the proverb many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find well, friends praise God, Jesus is faithful to his people. We have all the hope in the world So we've seen here in Malachi the great danger of unfaithfulness in our relationships with one another, with non-Christians, and with our spouse, and how much it grieves the Lord. But we've also seen that God remains faithful to Israel, and finally through us, uh, to us through Jesus, the bridegroom, who sacrificed his own life for us, and that is great news. For all of us who struggle to be faithful to God, who struggle to be faithful to each other, there is great reason for hope. Growth is possible when we look to our faithful Lord. John Bloom says this, the wonderful thing is that we don't need some special faithfulness gym membership to begin growing our capacity for faithfulness. We have everything we need right now, right where we find ourselves. Jesus tells us, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And so if we draw strength from Jesus to be faithful with a little, he will entrust us with much. And friends, if we devote ourselves to faithfulness here, someday we will hear our master say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we do praise you for your great faithfulness to us. We ask, Lord, that uh, by your spirit, you might help us as your church be a more uh, faithful people. Help us be those who uh, persevere in our commitments with each other. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you might bless all the relationships and the marriages here that couples might reflect something of your great love and faithfulness to us by the way they love and stay committed to each other. We thank you, Lord, for your word, and we pray about all of this in Christ's name. Amen.